Welcome back to this week's OIS podcast. This episode, five VC leaders share their secrets to success, how to get the crucial Series A funding, whether and when to go public, and what markets are most exciting to them right now in Retina. Led by moderator Dr. Emmett Cunningham of Blackstone Life Sciences, listen in as experts from both industry and finance offer their insights. For those of you whom I've not met, my name is Emmett Cunningham. I'm an ophthalmologist by history, retina and uveitis, but really have been investing full-time for the past 15 years. I was at a firm called Clarice Ventures, which was acquired by Blackstone, and now I'm a senior managing director of Blackstone Life Sciences. We do all forms of biotechnology, but unfortunately, I don't do as much ophthalmology as I used to or would like to do. So let's start closest to me. I'll have you introduce yourself, your name, where you are, and why you're interested in retina. Yeah, thank you very much, Emmett. And the, yeah, my name is uh, Josh Chiwata. I'm from uh, Santen Ventures, which is a corporate VC arm of uh, Santen Pharmaceutical. And the, yeah, as you all you know, is aware of this that you know, as a pharma company, you know, it is becoming more important, you know, to focus on the you know, uh, real unmet medical needs. So in ophthalmologies, I think, you know, obviously the retina is, I know, very important area where, I you know, there is a, such, I know, huge unmet medical needs. So as a something, you know, you know, both, you know, the R&D and the BD side, you know, we are, we have been focusing on retina very much. Yeah. That's great. So you, you go by Josh, is that correct? Yes. Or Josh? Yeah. Josh? Josh. Yeah. Josh. 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 Yes. Thank you, Josh. And for those of you who, who aren't maybe in the business world or practice, they are practicing retina doctors, many companies have a corporate venture arm which they can get a foot in the door, so to speak, of the most exciting emerging companies. So, next. Hi, my name is Andrew Liu. I'm a vice president of uh, corporate development at uh, Kang Hong Pharmaceutical, uh, which is based in uh, Chengdu, uh, China. Prior to that, I was uh, uh, head of corporate development at uh, Suntan. <coughs> And uh, Kang Hong has built a, a leading uh, position in, in uh, ocular uh, therapy in China by focusing on, on retina. Uh, so retina is an important segment for us. Uh, and we continue to focus on uh, innovation. Uh, well, in fact, we have a, an ongoing uh, research collaboration with uh, in, uh, UMass Medical School, uh, the uh, Jean Hore uh, uh, Therapy Center, which is uh, directed by uh, Dr. Guangping Gao, who you may know is one of the, uh, the uh, leading experts in uh, AAB. Uh, so as, if, as that, uh, if that collaboration, collaboration goes well, we'll be coming to some of you to, uh, uh, to talk about the international uh, partnership. That's great. And uh, as we get through this, these 40 minutes, I, w I do want to hear what your company is looking to bring in. Uh, Jason, please. Thanks, Emmett. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Jason Menzo, the Chief Operating Officer for the Foundation Fighting Blindness. And um, we are exclusively focused on retina and specifically dry AMD and inherited retinal diseases. Um, and recently, about now three years ago, we actually launched a venture fund called the RD Fund. And so we're not only advancing preclinical treatments through grants and awards, but also investing in companies, usually earlier um, on, the, uh, on the development cycle. Um, to advance the, the programs that are close to clinic and then moving through the clinic. Because again, our mission is to get 
treatments into patients' hands, not just to just to fund research endlessly. So um, it's been a, it's been a real joy to be with the organization for now three years. And since some folks may not have heard of such a thing, a philanthropic organization with a venture arm, why do you have a venture arm? So. Our mission being to get treatments all the way through for, um, and actually one of the people that could be credited with uh, some of the early investments is Patricia Ziliak. I was just talking to her in the break. But, um, you know, our objective is to get treatments all the way through, um, not just preclinical, through IND, obviously, and then, and then into patients' hands. And if we're only focusing on preclinical through grants and awards, and we're not having a seat at the table to advance things. And uh, it's, it's not just about the opportunity to advance things, but also having um, the potential for financial returns too by making good investments. Good, great. Well, I, I like the model. I wasn't being critical, but it's it's not all we often see. Firas, everybody knows Firas. He was on stage. <laughs> I think I've been up here. Uh, thanks to you, Emmett. Uh, Firas Rahal, I'm a partner at Retina Vitreous Associates a Medical Group in Los Angeles, a fairly large retina-only uh, busy practice uh, involved heavily in clinical trials. And I'm a partner in Excite Ventures, which is a early stage uh, VC for solely in ophthalmology. And uh, we invest in drugs, diagnostics, devices, but all in the ophthalmology space, not limited to retina. But to answer the question, what's my interest in retina? Emmett, sadly, uh, it's my only interest. <laughs> okay, well, we're gonna flesh that out in a bit, if you're us. So hold on to that, Fred. Uh, yes, yeah, so Fred Gerard, CEO of Greyberg, our lead compound is in uh, WetMD, so this is my interest in, in retina. In a previous life, I was uh, running Alcon Pharma and Novartis Retina. I uh, was involved into a number of retina uh, projects, uh, including the development of Borlucizumab and um, the in-licensing of Luxterna from Spark for the rest of the world. So we have a deep interest in retina. Yeah, uh, and lots of uh, relevant perspective. So my first question is, what's hot in retina? What, what, if you're an investor or a small company or a big company, what are you looking for? If I mentioned this to one of you earlier, I know the answer for most of non-retina, which is precision, genetically defined, patient-specific uh, therapies that have a much higher likelihood of, of succeeding and getting approval. But I don't know that I would necessarily say that for retina, but you tell me, Fred, let's start with you and you're in what, what is hot? What, what, <laughs> when you were looking and now when people are looking at you, what peaks interest? Yeah, so when, when we uh, were on the road to, uh, to raise money for, for Greyberg, I think one of the key questions was around how, how will you differentiate yourself to the large amount of products being developed now, in, especially in WetMD, but not only in WetMD, in every segment in retina, there is quite a lot of research ongoing, which is great. And I think the, the mindset was that one of these compounds would win the whole market and all the others would lose. And I spent actually a lot of time explaining that retina should not be different to any other therapeutic area. I mean, I worked in previous life in other spaces like, you know, psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, cardiology or dermatology or respiratory disease, where a number of compounds actually coexist in a, in a, in a certain market segment. And they all have their little niche and little positioning. And the retina market being so big, you don't need to have a 100% market share to have a very valuable product or a very valuable company. You need 5% of market share in WetMD to have a billion dollar product. 
So uh, that was the biggest pushback I was, I was giving. And people were thinking, you know, if gene therapies are successful, it means short-acting anti-VGS were never going to be used ever again. And we all know it's not, it's not true. They're all going to coexist and will be used for different patients. So uh, I want to follow up on one point, which is there are many big pharma companies for whom uh, if you do not have composition of matter, they won't even talk to you. And it's, uh, it's anathema. Novartis is one of those, actually, as you know. And now you're at a company where you have no composition of matter. So who's right? Can you get big and impactful drugs without composition of matter? And if, if so, why is Novartis so rigid on that point? So Greyberg is right, Novartis is wrong, obviously. <laughs> um, no, I don't think there is right or, or wrong. I think there is an element of sexiness you need to have for certain companies, for your compounds to be a priority. And these companies have choice. You know, when you have 500 clinical trials at any given time and you prioritize and reprioritize all the compounds all the time, sexiness is one aspect that is you know, um, important. Um, but I think if you have even an old molecule in a differentiated enough delivery platform or providing benefits that, you know, other drugs cannot provide, like duration, for instance, or, you know, better efficacy or less variation in, you know, uh, retinal thickness fluctuation, for instance, um, composition of matter somewhat doesn't matter as long as you have some sort of other protection. Um, I had always assumed that it was because if you had a generic, which was pennies or dollars, and you put it into a sustained release and charged thousands, that was a bit of a red face effect. But maybe I'm mistaken. You don't have to respond to that. Well, so it depends if the generic was used for the exact same indication in the exact same way. I think that would be hard to justify. But of course, if you use that for a completely different purpose, I think it's fine. Yeah, and it's all about the value add. So, Ferris, what are what are is your investment firm looking for when you were out there? So to echo a little bit what was said and give a little context, I, I do think one of the still the biggest driver for funding and, and raising money that we see and hear about all the time are the big markets, the wet AMD and diabetic retinopathies. And of course, those are fabulous markets with a lot of need. But what I end up usually seeing sometimes, unfortunately, is people with great ideas that might be a more niche uh, area that, that, to your point, uh, may only need to get 5 or 10% of a marketplace like failed therapies or, more importantly now, a more durable therapy, not lining up to go head-to-head -head with anti-VEGF drugs, which is a really, really high bar. As you know, 90% plus success rate <laughs> is hard to beat. And But I sadly sometimes see when the companies are going after the bigger money, say beyond what I can invest or our group can invest, they're often swayed towards these two marketplaces, even though they began with a much more unique and perhaps elegant science and concept that might have been enough, but uh, they want the, the big fish with the big dollars and that's what, what attracts them. Are there therapeutic areas other than AMD, TME, vein occlusion that you think could, could have that kind of market potential? I do. Not, not a market potential of the size of those three, but a substantial marketplace if it were a product that worked and were safe for patients. Things like uveitis, of course, Jason will speak to RP products, but even uveitis, which has come up, I can't tell you, dozens of times along the road since 2014 when I started getting involved in the financial end, where products look really great to me as a retina physician, for potential uveitis indications and thought 
of doing that was there and discussions were there. And then um, by the next raise, it had changed to uh, diabetic retinopathy, which we know has an inflammatory component and certainly anti-inflammatory type drugs might be useful there, but they're incredibly useful in uveitis, but it's a small market. But to answer, I think it is a big enough market that plenty of investors could make good return on a good uveitis product. You're a uveitis specialist. Okay. So Jason, you, you more than perhaps anybody on the group, perhaps Fred in his, his old job, uh, interested in, in gene therapy, which is precision and genetically defined, but you have patients, maybe 20 or 50 or 200, 500 patients. It's a very challenged business model in mm -hmm. some ways. So, so what do you think the ultimate impact of gene therapy is going to have on retina? Is it going to change our world or is it uh, going to be limited to niche indications? Well, from where we sit, um, we're definitely going to start in those that have um, the potential to change that person's world. And um, to your point, um, you know, just a week ago, we announced the formation of actually the first new company to spin out of the RD fund called Opus Genetics. And um, the markets that we're pursuing are exactly the way you described. They're, in some cases, several hundred patients as a global pre prevalence. Um, but the opportunity to have a successful clinical trial and to see a child who has LCA that ultimately was on a particular trajectory in terms of their quality of life have a complete transformation, which we anticipate. We saw obviously what um, has happened for individuals treated with, with um, Sparks Luxterna. Um, it's, it's, a real, it's a real unique um, uh, mantle that we get to hold as the Foundation Fighting Blindness because ultimately being backed with patient dollars. So the RD fund, ultimately everything we invest is donor dollars. So they're philanthropic donations to the foundation fighting blindness that are then used for venture investments. And then the returns go back to advance more science and to further the mission. And so an investment made by the RD fund ultimately is backed by the dollars of patients and individuals affected more than anything else. So to answer your question, I, th I think that probably in the near term, the greatest impact of gene therapy is going to be those um, really clear gene targets that have well-defined natural history, good animal models, and are sort of de-risked for clinical success. Um, what happens after that? You know, we, we have needs for um, the ability to have uh, larger transcripts in, in different, um, different uh, you know, vectors that can actually transport larger genes. But, you know, for right now, there's enough opportunity for the 300 genes that are, are you know, affecting IRDs to, um, to hopefully pick a couple of them off. Well, the, I think the number from target identification in the lab to approval is average of about 16 years. That, that, that number has been around for a long time, and it really hasn't gotten short and shorter. It's about the same or slightly longer, but it's about half that for gene therapy. Mm -hmm. So and it's much, much less expensive. So you can actually iterate and learn more. And I think what uh, clear... Clearside and Regenix Bioshing with supercrotal delivery and then Adverin with Intravitreal and other companies as well. I, I do think we're going to be able to move to more prevalent conditions and really administer to the masses over time. And even beyond AAV vectors, I think we just we, we have no idea what's coming with gene silencing and insertion, and it's going to be very, very exciting. But I come back to that 8 to 16-year cycle time. It's very slow. Most of my career has been a VEGF career. There have been other things, but it's dominated. We're, I think we're about to enter a, ge a geographic atrophy uh, uh, period, right? Where you'll have these um, Apellus, Iveric, 
taking their compounds for. And then everybody will be talking about geographic atrophy for a decade, but it's a very slow cycle. So uh, what are you looking to build out in your company in China? What do you have and what do you want to add to it in China? So I think the, you know, uh, VJF is, is still kind of a uh, um, mainstay for the company. And, you know, I, I would like to see, uh, obviously, innovation in, in AAV, that's, that's great. But, uh, you know, a better uh, delivery, you know, of uh, VJF, I think, would be uh, very much welcome, especially uh, in China, where uh, it is hard to, to, for patients to, to get to the hospital uh, to, to get injections. So, you know, I... I think I, I look for three things uh, in terms of extended um, uh, delivery. One is that, you know, preferably a device that doesn't go into the eye. Uh, and, and two, uh, preferably a device that sort of uh, pumps rather than just rely on um, illusion. And then third, that it, it can deliver a drug, you know, directly from the bottle rather than, you know, uh, reformulating it with the polymer or something like that. So, you know, um, I know, you know, Dr. Marco Mayun has, has a, a device that, that sort of, uh, you know, I hope he's uh, successful to, because it fits that, those three, three uh, characteristics pretty well. And that, that would be something that would be very, very uh, good for, you know, um, underserved markets like, like China. So a follow-up question on sort of what flies in China. Many companies want to talk to Chinese companies about regional deals. And yet my impression has been that only those drugs that are the most impactful, life-saving, vision-saving, et cetera, can really command a price that even comes close. And even then it doesn't really come close to a price in the U.S., for example. Right. So, so what, what can be licensed to China or a Chinese company and what is really just very difficult? <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, as of, you know, like yesterday counting, uh, I'm aware of uh, 12 different companies set up as, you know, to focus on uh, ophthalmology. And uh, to name a few, you know, uh, there's a company called Alphamat and there's uh, Occumention. You might have heard some of these names. And, uh, you know, between the 12 companies, uh, close to, to uh, well, $2 billion, you know, has been raised, uh, both in the... It, Initially, you know, with from a, a C funding from an investment uh, fund, and then uh, Occumention and uh, another company, they were able to uh, raise uh, 400 million more on the public market. So, you know, there's a um, quite a lot of resources, and if you look at the the kind of uh, uh, what has been uh, licensed by some of these companies, I mean, UTIC is one, uh, and so it's it's a it's, you know, um, uh, myopic, you know, atropine. Yeah, so. how, how big is the anti-VEGF market in uh, China? What's the total sales for anti-VEGF agents in China? Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's close to like, maybe 700 million now. 700. Yeah. Okay, so it's a tenth, less than a tenth of this country. It, that, that's generally <coughs> the rule. Is, is like it's about one-tenth of you know, the U.S., and, but that's, it's, you know, obviously the pricing is lower, but it is a rapidly aging society. So the, the in terms of the, uh, what's being administered, that's, it's going to continue to grow. Yeah, I, I remember learning that Latana Prospect was a billion dollars here, sold about a hundred million in China. So the 10th is a good number to remember. And um, what's, uh, what is Santan Ventures looking for? What, what is, and, and well, first tell us whether you can do whatever you want or Santan tells you what to do. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, thank you very much. And the that means Santa yeah, tells him what to do. Yeah, I don't have you know much comment, which I like that that I know that, but I know like, uh, as a kind of you know uh, how can I say how how we see the market is very you know similar to the comment from others. So, so in Latina, you know, there are lovely, very lovely to target segment for us. One is, you know, anti-VHA, DME, or DL, you know, these, you know, uh, diseases, which has already, you know, huge, you know, existing market. While I know we are, we are the, you know, yeah, we are selling idea in Japan, but uh, it's, uh, you know, mark, kind of a marketing partnership with Bayer. And in other countries, you know, unfortunately, we something, you know, haven't had any, you know, anti-VHA product and so the yeah we have been doing something you know uh for that market you know, in ex japan market but as we just uh discussed in the morning session the you know and probably the anti-pgf market would be a kind of a clouded one in next five years or ten years so the you know we have to be realistic you know what we something can do from now for this market. Yeah, but still we are interested and we are closely monitoring the, you know, uh, all the opportunities in the market. Yeah, if it includes, you know, Greyberg, Cambacept, everything. And so we are happy to discuss any, you know, type of partnership for anti-BGF. And the, also the, something has been interested in IRD diseases. And the, this is also being discussed, but uh, yeah, challenge is there, you know, this, the ILD you know, composed of the you know, very small subset, subset of the you know uh, diseases. So the, each of them doesn't have much patient. So the but uh, yeah, uh, if if something you know tends to do anything in this field. Probably you know, it, it make us difficult to survive in the pharmaceutical business. So the yeah, there are many uncertainties for something. That is why the, you know we have we established a corporate VC and the, by doing so that you know yeah we can learn yeah the dynamics and movement in the retina so that by taking some you know risk financial risk and then the. Yeah, hopefully we can secure the, you know, uh, seeds for the new product or, you know, yeah, services for the future sentence business. Okay, thank you for that. So let us turn now to maybe the earlier stage companies and company creation. Some of you have tried to create early stage companies. Some of you have funded early stage companies. If you were to give a word or two of advice to people who want to raise money at that stage, really company creation, Series A, what would be your advice? Um, do you want to start? You're nodding as if you have oh, it, sorry. so let's yeah. share yeah. it with yeah. us. The, the, the wheels are turning, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, for anyone who's who's in that in that position right now, I think that one of the most important things is just to be really sharp in um, either yourself or bring on uh, a team of, you know, ex an experienced executive or someone who's, who's done this before, but really um, being able to tell your story. And um, certainly from where we sit, it's not just about the technology. 
Um, it's about the team, the operational plan, um, being able to see and really clearly understand the, the drivers of value, what the milestones are, um, the use of proceeds, and, um, and, uh, and to make sure that as you're you know, coming out of the gates and you're, you're partnering with, with, um, with, a, with an investor to make sure that you've got a really strong investor that's committed to, your, to the vision of the, the, the scientific founders. Um, and uh, that, that, that's it, you know, to make sure that you've got the, the real clear vision, not just great technology, but actually the roadmap on how to execute on it. That's such an important piece of the equation. So I, I agree completely. It's, it's all about a plan to get to real value creation and how much that's going to cost. And the, the difficulty is it's costing more and more every year. And so, and especially if you go into a crowded space like the AMD space, it can cost 60 million until you know whether you're differentiated or more, maybe a hundred million. And that puts people in a, in a difficult position. Um, speaking of which, Fred, how do you, how do you go out and ask for a hundred million dollars before you have, I'm, I'm changing to Fred now because I know you have gone out to ask for hundreds of millions of dollars. How, how, what do you need to, to raise large amounts of money when you're going out? Yeah. Well, I think you need, as you said, uh, a clear story and the story of, explaining why your drug would be used and how differentiated it will be at the end, as well as a roadmap, you know, as you, as you said, you know, cutting a lot of early stage companies cut corners on things like CMC, for instance, and, and that inevitably comes back at you at some stage. And uh, so I think be, being able to show that you've built something solid and that you've not cut corners and that you can, you know, explain what you're going to do next and where, when are the next inflection points? Uh, I think that's key to, uh, to to raise large amounts of money. I think the team, in some ways, the feeling I got being now on the side of the small company side, not the big one, um, is a lot of attention was dedicated to evaluating the team as much as evaluating the technology. And we, I think, sometimes wrongly believe people invest behind a product where I got the feeling that people were actually investing more behind a team that can turn around situation when it will inevitably not go exactly according to plan. Um, so those are the things I've kind of learned in that journey. Firas, any comments? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's easy to say this, but I couldn't agree more with those comments. It, it's clearly in that early stage uh, from our recent experiences, even comparing portfolio, portfolio companies that we even currently have, the, the choice of the early management team, particularly usually to your point, one person, a CEO type, whatever you title that person, who's gonna drive the development plan, drive the stakeholders to stay on point and stay on schedule, raise the right amount of money, uh, not too little, let's say, just to get started, but enough to get to that next inflection point. And then, so as not to be too repetitive, uh, and I think Jason mentioned this as well, um, the, maybe the most important thing that we viewed when we're waiting around to see if those next bigger investors are coming is how well that can be articulated by that individual. It's not really a team effort as much as it probably should be, and the founders may not always uh, be that equipped at articulating the message in a way as you just said, 
to raise the 60 million, it's a challenge. <laughs> Nobody wants to give you that kind of money. And as an early investor, we're sort of laying in the weeds, helping, talking to the new investors potentially, but one key person has to be able to deliver and articulate that excellent development plan with authority. And I think that's the critical thing. It is, it can be challenging. We have this expression in investing that raising insufficient funds is a bridge to nowhere. Nobody yeah. wants to do that. So you really have to raise enough to get to that inflection point plus six months to raise the next round. And um, in crowded spaces like AMD, that, as I say, can be $40 million. So it's it really takes amazing science, amazing animal results, an amazing team, because it's a big bet. It's a really, really large bet. And that's another reason you see many, many companies and people going after these rare indications because it's a half or a third of the total cost to get to a pretty clear proof of concept. So, so there's that. Now, when let's assume you have gotten to what is a clear de-risking and you say, well, everybody's going public. There were, I think, 600 IPOs in the last five years, some phenomenal number, this crazy number of IPOs. In, in the last, I looked at this recently, in the last 10 or 12 years, the number of public biotech companies has increased fivefold. It just, there aren't enough management teams, great management teams for all these, there aren't enough analysts to cover them. It's, it's, it's really, and so you have this whole micro cap universe that nobody's paying attention to. Investors aren't looking at it, analysts aren't looking, because there just aren't enough. It's growing faster than the ecosystem can grow. But that said, um, how do you think, uh, you went through this, Fred, I'll, start, I'll go back to you and then we'll have some other comments. How do you think about when and how to go public and, and it should it be with a SPAC, should it be, um, a reverse merger, an IPO. What's what are some thoughts that went through your mind when you were trying to decide? Yeah, thank you for a very narrow question, Emmett. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it's it's hard to tell. I think every it depends on your situation. So um, SPACs are interesting, but I found them to be almost more complicated than IPOs. Uh, I think these days IPOs are actually probably easier than SPAC uh, in some ways, um, and. I, what I've seen now that we are looking to in license uh, earlier stage technologies is sometimes companies think they can go public without having a team in place. Uh, and they think that the SPAC is the way to go public in that case where they basically have what they have is a product, but it's not a team. And I don't think you can necessarily do that and operationalize then a public company without <coughs> a team. You need a CFO and you need a public company CEO. So. Um, I don't know if SPAC is the answer to, to every, every problem. Um, IPO is, I mean, it's really uh, depending on, on the, the segment where you are. So it seems you, if you're in oncology, you can IPO with one mouse. Uh, but if you're, <laughs> if you're in WetMD these days, I'm not quite sure. I think you probably need to have done at least a proof of concept in, uh, in non-monkeys uh, primates, you know. So... Um, um, you, so I think it depends a bit on, on, on which, which stage you, you are. Um, but the IPO market has been incredibly good. I mean, we, we did the IPO during COVID and uh, that was logistically uh, intense and very new because we did the whole IPO process on Zoom. Um, and, uh, but it did work extremely well and, uh, and we had a lot of interest. And uh, so uh, the, 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 the market is clearly open for, uh, for, for IPOs. But I, I, I think it's going too early is a, is a huge risk because if when you need to pivot your technology, if your technology is not ready for prime time and ready ready for public market scrutiny, you're actually much better to be private. You can you can pivot, you can tweak, you can tune. You have the flexibility to do things you cannot do when you're public. 
because you have to explain along the way what, what you're doing and, 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 uh, and provide that clear roadmap I was, I was talking about. So uh, I, I would strongly advise anyone not to go public too early uh, and have the right syndicate of investors before, before going public. Yeah, I would just add to that, if you can, and it's not always possible, but you'd like to go public at a valuation that does not land you in microcap land. Mm -hmm. So if you can have a valuation above 500, it'll make your life tremendously more easy because no one will cover you, no one will invest in you. No one, mm -hmm. If you're 100 million market cap, it's very, very challenging uh, these days. Okay, let me, let, let's talk to our, turn to this end of the table and talk about partnerships, corporate partnerships, whether it's China or Japan or Europe, uh, how, on the one hand, a small company would say, well, I have to give up so much economics to do that partnership, especially if I do it early, I should just wait until later. Um, but on the other hand, it's really hard to sell stuff in Japan and China if you don't do those partnerships. So how, how should companies think about using those regional partnerships as funding vehicles? Another narrow question. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is definitely the, you know, um, ch China, for example, the, the regulatory environment is, is uh, rapidly evolving. So, and, you know, the, uh, and also the, uh, the reimbursement uh, is, is quite tricky. And, and I think many of the uh, potential partners I speak to, they just feel like uh, it's kind of an opaque market. And on, on top of that, uh, you have the, uh, Possibly rising uh, political tension with the United States, and and so therefore, you know, uh, leads to the the sort of story we how we like to position ourselves. It would, it would be, you know, um, just have a good local partners who can help you to navigate uh, some of the potential pitfalls, and who 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 are really are, are on top of the, uh, the very rapidly changing both pay, payers uh, and also regulatory environment. So the arguments I, I hear around the board at board meetings against doing, especially a China deal, are it's all back-ended. The upfronts are modest, and so it's, it really isn't much of a financing vehicle. And by the way, if you do that, uh, and one of the companies that actually wants to have that market, like Novartis, will be less interested when they come to look at you as, for an acquisition. So true or false or somewhere in, in the middle? Um. I, I haven't really seen a situation where it sort of de detracts from, you know, uh, interest because, uh, <clears throat> you know, we, we've seen companies that have successfully had, uh, you know, European partnership and then, uh, and, uh, com commercial, uh, partnership and, and then commercial partnership for Asia. And, you know, so they can just focus on the science. I think at least that's, that's, I seem to see that, uh, quite a bit. And obviously Japan has a great, or Santen has a great distribution uh, network in Asia. Uh, does it, uh, do they do deals just in Japan or is it really Pan-Asia when you, when you partnership with Santen? Yeah, given the situation that the, the other Asian countries were also dialogue is becoming more important for Santen as the, yeah, I don't like to, make that much, you know, pessimistic comment for Japanese market, but we have to be realistic that, you know, presence of the Japan market in the total, you know, global market, it's, yeah, becoming smaller. So the, yeah, to keep, you know, uh, good, you know, 
you know, growth rate as a something, we have to be, yeah, invest more and more in the other countries. I mean, the other Asian countries, other, you know, European countries. Also, the, we are trying to enter into the US. So the, yeah, from that standpoint, you know, we base, basically, you know, you know, don't do that, you know, Japan specific license uh, much at this time. But, uh, yeah, it, it, of course, you know, depends on the, you know, what the type of partnership that, you know, potential partner wants to discuss. You know, Japan, you know, specific licenses. Yeah, of course, it's still possible. But, uh, it will be, yeah, uh, from Santen's perspective, you know, we also have, you know, established commercial capability in Asia and Europe. So the, by having, you know, uh, commercial light among for those countries, and that would be more, you know, effective from the, you know, investment efficiency standpoint. Yeah, but we are flexible. We made a couple of, you know, uh, licensing deal for this in these two years. You know, some of them are for Asia only. Some of them are, you know, Japan, ex-US, you know, license. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's it. yeah, well, maybe to comment on my own question and just a perspective is that it's sometimes nice to have it back-ended if your partner is very capable and you know they're going to do a great job commercializing the drug because that's where all the value is. And I do think many of the Asia deals can have a pretty hefty royalty and some success milestones as part of it. So uh, from that perspective, it can be good. And when you were at Novartis, if someone had partnered China, did it really worry you or not? Um, I Traditionally, large multinationals have not been the most successful in these two markets. So I think having a local partner does not destroy necessarily a lot of value. Um, I think big, large companies sometimes look more at you know, US and Europe. Disconnecting US from Europe is more of an issue for these big pharma. Uh, I think China um, and Japan are probably fair game and uh, yeah, it's probably safe. Okay, I, I didn't, I didn't um, I, in all candor, I do give some direction to what questions I'm going to ask, although there were many surprises here today. My friends will tell me when we're done. This is a complete surprise, and it's the last question. What, what area do you think is going to, uh, what subpart of retina do you think is going to just capture our attention for the next five years? Which one sub, subpart of retina? Jason's nodding again, so I let him Sorry. jump in. Yeah, I, I just, I loved the, um, the session this afternoon on artificial intelligence. And I think that that, um, I was at a meeting last week where Michael Chang, the new uh, director of NEI, uh, gave a great presentation on artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, I thought the presentations today were great. There's a lot of activity in that space. I think that's going to be transformational. Great. For us, yeah. I'd have to say in that five or so uh, time frame, the biggest thing, dry AMD is my, my guess. Yeah. Fred? Yeah, I would have said intermediate AMD and geographic atrophy because there's such a huge number of patients with no options to treat days. I think about eight years ago, I had a slide at OIS that said dry is the new wet. But, it's, uh, <laughs> it, but I was early. I was too early. Now I think it's about to come. And well, I kind of have a, 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 a something I worry about is the, uh, the lack of, of uh, relative lack of ophthalmologists. I think like. Per population, uh, ophthalmologists, especially retina specialists in China, is very, very low. 
So that, that's why it's it's very very well you know undertreated. So I I think somebody's going to focus on this in the next five to ten years. You know you have a really rapidly aging society, and just no eye doctors to see to see uh, when it's going to be a huge problem. And I hope that somebody's going to. Uh, pay attention to that over the next uh, five to ten years. So my my wife and I were talking about it on the drive here from Austin just this morning. I think home monitoring is going to be big, be mm. just for that reason. Uh, limited nurses, limited physicians, burgeoning patients. Uh, it's going to go remote faster than we thought, and AI will probably accelerate and augment all of that. You have the last word, Yosh. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I really you know we are about to have you know fast uh, product for the. GA. So, you know, in terms of the, you know, uh, you know, commercial digital market, I think you know, that will be a, that will give a huge impact on it. Yeah, I'm sure. And the, if, if I have to make a different comment, you know, this may be uh, my personal hope, but uh, I'd like to see a, uh, yeah, real game changer in the IRD field and the, yeah, FFB and the, you know, other investors are making, you know, huge investment in gene and cell therapies. And the, now that, you know, a lot of clinical trials are ongoing. So the, I don't think the, yeah, we, we have seen that, you know, real game changer in this field. But yeah, hopefully we'd like to see something in the next maybe five years or 10 years. But that's my hope. Excellent. Well, I thank the panelists. Great, great discussion. I'll invite up the next moderator. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the OIS podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our iTunes channel so you get the latest ophthalmology insights. Got a story of your own to tell? Apply to be a guest at ois.net.